Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 69 of the Peristyle Podcast. If you don't know, the Peristyle Podcast is our weekly USC internet radio show talking all about the USC Trojans, mostly the football team, but we talk about other sports as well. We have a really exciting show for you on the podcast today. Today is Wednesday, June 10th, 2009. We're going to talk to Coach Hyde in the first segment all about some of the great USC football traditions that people like, especially the game day traditions. What makes kind of the stuff that makes USC special? We're also going to have Dan Wykey, uscfootball.com beat writer, talking about Tim Floyd a little bit later on the show. He resigned out of the blue this week. Uh, he's lining up a very special guest, so we're trying to get Fran Fracillo uh, on the show, so that'll be great if we can get him on. And also we're going to talk to Gerard Martinez about USC football recruiting. But as promised, the first segment, we have Coach Harvey Hyde with us. As always, Coach, what's going on, man? Hey, man, here we go again, huh? <laughs> and I, I cannot believe that we've uh, done so many segments because we have so much fun, man. And uh, here we are. You know, what, what are we, about 87 days away from USC's opening game, September the 5th? I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, a quick summer, and all of a sudden, we're into football again. Yeah, quick. It'll be summer workouts, and we'll have fall practice before you know it, the beginning of August, and boom, kickoff, playing San Jose State, going on the road to Ohio State. It's it's happening really fast, and uh, Coach, we'll get into that a little bit, but I wanted to thank our sponsor for this segment. They always are kind enough to sponsor this first segment with Coach Hyde, Southern California Tickets. SCTickets.com is the website, or if you want to give them a call, 1-800-888-7287, and I did get my Red Sox tickets in the mail this week, Coach, so six tickets together going to Fenway Park uh, with my family and my girlfriend, Jenna, who's never been to Boston before, so I'm looking forward to that, and uh, thanks to Southern California Tickets for hooking that up. That sounds great. You know what I want to do with you? I want to, maybe you should call me in from there and get on one of my shows and tell me what it feels like to be at Fenwick Park, huh? Sure, I'll do that. I, yeah, I've been to Fenway. I mean, because I you know went to high school and stuff back there, but my girlfriend's never been, and it's a, it's a great experience. I haven't actually been since they expanded a little bit, so uh, should be fun, coach. But I'll call in wherever you want. Whenever you want me on, I'm there. Well, after our segment here this morning, we'll talk about that. How's all right. that? All right, that sounds good. Uh, all right, so we got a lot to get to, so let's uh, get into it. Um, there's, there was one uh, comment from last week. Uh, we got some emails on that. Martin wanted to let you know that the you know you were talking about when USC ran the ball with conviction, and uh, the last time they really did that last year against Arizona State, and if you remember that, they did uh, pound the rock a little bit there. So I think I think you were trying to uh, find. You know, we were all thinking about when was the last time they really just dedicated themselves to running the football, and I think it was that Arizona State game. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can't specifically remember back on that game, uh, but uh, I think they did, uh, and I think they went to that because the passing game wasn't going well, and I think Pete Carroll just went down to Steve Sarkeesian and said, hey, we're going to run the football. Run the ball, yeah. Run the ball, and the crowd really got into it. Did you notice how excited everybody was when they were running the football, too? It isn't like just us talking about it. It's, it's part of the game, football. And running the football is the way it really started. The pass came afterwards, you know? Right. So, 
So, you know, the passing game is very important, and you have to be balanced and so on. And it's not just balance on the number of times you attempt it. It's the success, uh, the success you have in doing it and keeping people off balance so that your passing game does work and the play-action pass does work better because the linebackers have to wait and wait and make sure that it didn't run. So uh, I'm really anxious, as we talked about it before in a lot of our segments with the hiring of Jeremy Bates, just what style of play caller he is. Is, is he going to be one that talks about the run but throws the football? Is he going to be one that throws the football and the run comes off the pass? Or is he going to be one that says, hey, we're going to run the football and throw the football, but our running game is going to set up our play-action pass game. The people aren't going to know every time when we come out of the bootleg that we can play bootleg because they're not going to run the football. So, you know, I'm really anxiously waiting for the season to see just what type of chemistry there is and his play calling and so on and see where we are with the SC offense. You know, I saw – one of the first books that came out. I don't know if you've seen any of the publications yet. I haven't checked them out yet. I usually get like uh, Phil Steele and uh, some of those. Yeah, they'll usually. You know, I got, yeah. yeah, I got Phil Steele yesterday. Oh, cool. And 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 uh, you know, I don't want to change our topic, but it's real interesting. It's one of the best books out. I, I really believe it is. I enjoy reading it a lot. And they have SC listed as the number three team in the country. They've got Florida one, uh, Texas two. No, they have. Uh, I think they have Oklahoma 2 or Texas 2. I can't remember because I just glanced at it. And USC 3. Ah, interesting. That's probably about right. I would figure there'd be a top four type of team going into this year with uh, right, all right. the guys coming back. But yeah, it'll be, I'll, I'm going to check those out. And uh, he usually, Phil still usually sends me a, a copy of those and stuff like the Pac 10 1. And stuff. so that'll be interesting. I gotta, haven't got it in the mail yet. Hopefully, we'll get it pretty soon. Well, I'm going to sit down and start reading it. I really like it. Yeah. I read about the Pac-10 and the Big Ten and all the teams. It really gets you ready. This is when you start getting ready for football when the publications come out, you know? Now when it's you start, time. Huh? Now it's time, Coach. Yeah, you're right. You know, I don't like that new rule either about the media guides coming out. I know we're jumping all around today. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to like it not having media guides. Are you? Yeah, I mean, I, I have like a whole pile of them, I think, all the way back from like 1995 or something i have all the usc media guides and uh yeah i mean for people aren't they're gonna they're not allowed to do the media guides anymore right it has to be all digital and people can print it out themselves is that that that's basically the new rule right yeah i don't know i i, I think it's been passed i don't know what sport it, it involves i don't know if football is one of them for sure uh, I've got to read it to find out, but, you know, media day and media guides and all of that is something that's great, but I guess it costs the universities a lot of money, somewhere around $300,000 to print these media guides, and, you know, a few years ago, they made it that they couldn't be over, what, 500 pages, if you remember. Yeah, I, I don't it think back. it was that many. It, may, it might be like 200 or something, but it was, yeah, they used to have bigger bigger guides, and they were fancier, and then they cut it down, or you couldn't have that many pages, and it's always a chore, Coach, if you go to Pac-10 Media Day, you try to grab every single media guide and stick it in one of those little bags they give you, and everyone's walking around with this huge anchor of media guides on Pac-10 Media Day. So I guess we won't have to do that anymore if this if this does pass. Yeah, it's, it's sort of disappointing because I used to love to read about it. I'd read about every team and so on. In fact, I used to take a suitcase with wheels on it. Uh, I'm not going to carry that bag. That bag was heavy, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I used to take a suitcase, pack it all up, bring a couple of extras for my friends, and it was great. But uh, I have to see. I'm not sure if 
it's already in effect or if it's the following year, 2010. Yeah, I heard I that. Know. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure either, Coach, and I, I apologize for that. I mean, we, I heard this was going down, but I don't know exactly when. So we'll, we'll have to find that out. And, uh... I know, and we apologize to our listeners out there for jumping around. But when we hear inside scoops, we want to tell you. We've got to give it to you right away, Coach. Well, right away. We, we started on the running game. That was like a comment. And uh, there's a question um, that has to deal with the running game. And this one comes from Jeff in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. So that's kind of interesting. Um, we, we do like the international questions. We get a bunch of them on the recruiting stuff, so it's cool to get some team ones as well. Uh, he wanted to know, nationally speaking, how good are these USC running backs? Because they've all come in with a high high school pedigree, and yet none of them have dominated like you've seen some backs dominate other schools. Is that because of the game plan, the offensive line? They just aren't as good. And, and I would add to that, coaches, or is it because there's too many and they have to share the ball? So uh, kind of get your thoughts overall on the uh, SC running backs. Well, you know, I think what's happened to the SC running back uh, itself is they've become a specialist. And what I mean by that, there's certain backs in the game for certain plays and, and so on, certain formations and so on. And one back hasn't really developed into being the guy. And, uh, you know, if you, if you know, but they have the type of players that can be the guy. Mark Tyler can be the guy. Uh, Sam Bradford could have been the guy. Sam, of course, uh, had some injuries and so on along the way. So same, same with Tyler. But, you know, they've got a lot of backs, and they rotate the backs a lot. And obviously you know why they're rotating them, Joe McKnight and all the rest of them, is to keep them happy because they're all playing. And that's just an automatic thing you do because you certainly don't want these backs transferring like Moody did and went down to Florida. But, you know, Moody isn't really starting down there getting many more turns than he did when he was at SC. So how good they really are, it's hard to really tell. I know when I watch them in practice, I have a chance to get a better feel in the game. Uh, Of course, I've seen brilliance from some of them, and then I haven't. I, I mean, I don't like to see a back get run down. And I've seen a couple of uh, backs get run down. So I'm not really sure on their overall speed as far as how fast they really are. Uh, you know, after, after you follow a back like Reggie Bush, it's really hard to determine. Uh, no one looks good. I mean, when you, when you try to evaluate someone to what Reggie Bush did in college. So I think they're quality backs. They're all four- and five-star backs. But I think they're specialists now, like Joe McKnight. He's not in there on a passing play, or he's, a, he's more of a skilled type of slot, or he's going to run a reverse or do certain things. He's not going to line up and carry the football, you know, 25 times like, like some backs do in the country, uh, like in Alabama and some of these other places, Georgia and so on, and become great running backs because along the way they become bigger, stronger, more mature, and they're the guy. I think sometimes having too many backs – do hurt you, but again, you have to have backs because you have injuries and so on, and it's a little different of a philosophy now. When John McKay was there, it was, this is the tailback. He is going to be the tailback. He's going to carry the ball 30, 40 times a game, and, you know, the only way someone else is going to play once they determined who that person was if he got hurt. If you remember, uh, and Marcus Allen was a fullback at one time yeah. with John McKay. Uh, and he went in there and was a fullback, and he wasn't going to say anything about it, and all of a sudden he became a tailback and won the Heisman Trophy. So they had a lot of backs then, too. Like, guess he has a lot of backs now. 
So I think right now at SC, it's more or less a specialist type of player. It's a player that rotates in and out. Uh, they keep the players happy. But I don't know quite if that makes one of them a better football player. Okay. I've, I've always believed you've got to do it all to be a great back, okay? And I think right now that's, that's sort of missing. Now, Coach, I think you bring up a good point. The specialist, but also, and I think you said Sam Bradford. You meant Alan Bradford, but that's okay. Alan, I'm of, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's I right. had a Sam Bradford once. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, but, you know, back then, like you said, if you had a, a, a Marcus Allen, that talented of a back, he still was going to wait his turn. And, uh, you know, nowadays it's kind of like there's, it's spread out a little bit. You, you get your turn might be the next series instead of the next year. So it, it seems now, I mean, they, there's a lot of numbers there. And they're they're willing to spread it around a little bit, and as opposed to putting one feature back, and it's I think some schools do that, and some schools don't, you know, and 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 I, I don't think you can do that unless you have the abundance of talent that USC has at the tailback position. But it's it's it can be frustrating at times. I think a lot of the fans would like to see one one dude be the guy, or maybe two, and, and not five or six, and because it's hard to you know get in a rhythm, and it's hard to kind of get behind somebody. And then it ends up being fans fight over, you know, I think Bradford's the best or Tyler's the best or Stephon Johnson's the best or whatever. And it, and it just seems to never resolve. And it's a, something you have to talk about like week in and week out. You're right. And then all of a sudden one back has a great game and the next week he doesn't play. Or he doesn't have a great game and someone else has a great game. So that's what happens when you rotate players all the time. And uh, I'm not saying it's bad. I understand the philosophy of what's going on there as far as trying to keep these backs happy and so on. And uh, But uh, it, it, you've got a different philosophy now as far as with skilled players. You know, if they're not, if they're not happy, they're going to transfer or they're going to move on. or You know, it's a different deal now. Everyone who's going to college because they want to go to the NFL or they want to come out early. Uh, it's, it's not like I'm, I'm going to college to, get my, to play my four years and, and, and do this, it, there's a lot more involved with a five-star player and a four-star player today. They want exposure. They're on national TV. The way SC does such great, a great job in recruiting, and Pete Carroll's one of the best recruiters there is out there, is they sell the exposure they get nationally. Look how many national televised games they're on where people get to watch them and vote for them and pro scouts watch them and 11 players drafted last year and so on. And you know, you could be a second stringer and get drafted at USC, but you got great potential. And, uh, and another thing, too, you know, backs don't have a long lifetime in the NFL. So if you're a great back and you didn't play a lot in college and you have great pro potential, you know, you really are worth a lot in the NFL, but you're not beat up. You're not beat up and your knees aren't beat up or you, don't have, you haven't had three or four surgeries or so on because you haven't played that much and you can develop and become a great player or play special teams and then become a great player. So there's a lot to it all. And, uh, uh, yes, I'm the one-back type of guy or two-back type of guy. and I even like two backs in the backfield a lot. So, But, uh, again, they've been very successful at what they do. And as I went back to – I want to go back to the point I said earlier, I'm looking forward to see what Jeremy Bates' philosophy is as far as calling plays. Now, he's not the offensive coordinator. He's the play caller. So I'm really interested to see what his rhythm will be and what he will try to drive into these players' minds as far as what's important. And you know, Coach, what before I want to get to the traditions part of this, but because uh, we have a lot of 
topics to get to, but interesting enough, I mean, I want to see in a year or two, the, the NFL drafts that come up when you have a lot of these guys, where are these backs going to go? Like a CJ Gable or a, a Stefan. I mean, guys that won't, you know, maybe they weren't the starter. They didn't get a whole bunch of carries, but they looked really good. I mean, I think you might see a whole bunch, like a handful of these USC backs getting a shot at different NFL teams, even though they didn't, you know, dominate their position, you know, at, at USC. I think you'll see guys like Joe McKnight and stuff get drafted. And it'll be interesting to follow them and see how they do. And that freshness factor you talked about, they'll be fresher than other backs that like a Beanie Wells that got every carry, you know, every you know, of every play of the whole year. I agree with you. And I'll tell you, if you're looking at Field uh, Steel magazine that's coming out, and you look at the top running backs in the country, he always lists the top quarterbacks, top running backs. And you know, he's not he doesn't know everything, and he's not exactly on, but he lists at least three or four of SC's running backs as the top running backs in the country because he knows what type of potential, who they are, and what they can do. So, uh, you know, they do have that type of quality back. Cool. All right. Well, let's get to, uh, you know, your questions, or we love to answer them, especially during the off season when there, you know, there's no games really to talk about, but we're going to talk about summer workouts and everything that's going on. And summer workouts have kicked off, Coach. They, uh, Carlisle's getting the guys working this week, and we've been down uh, filming some of their throwing sessions and stuff. So if you want to check out uscfootball.com, we've got all the exclusive highlights and photos and stuff from what's been going down there. Um, and those will continue all the way up until fall camp. But uh, we like your questions, so podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address if you want to drop us a email and give us a, a question or an idea and uh we got one from jack in new jersey he wanted to talk about some of his favorite or anyone's favorite usc football traditions and i thought that was a really interesting topic to talk about so i posted it on the uscfootball.com message board on the peristyle and also uh on our we have a really big facebook page coach coach are you on facebook you, you a big uh, social networking guy on the internet no, I, I don't do much of that. <laughs> We're going to set you up with one, Coach. You'll love it. You can get to connect with okay. all these guys. Um, okay. So we, we got a lot of responses. So I wanted to kind of, you know, we'll kind of list them off and uh, maybe, you know, get a few comments on each one of them, Coach, if you want. And, uh, you know, when you're in the media, I mean, I, you've been to a lot of games and stuff, but sometimes you miss out on some of the traditions just because you have to, you know, be up in the press box or whatever. But we'll go over some of those. And, uh, First one came from David Fine. He's uh, associated with the Trojan Knights and both of his traditions. He likes um, the fact that before the UCLA game, uh, the Trojan Knights guard Tommy Trojan 24 hours a day for their entire week. And also um, the Trojan Knights get that first row uh, in the student section and body paint themselves. They would say things like last year, you know, be fight on or Viva Sanchez and stuff like that. So those are... Those are a couple of good traditions. You, you always see those guys coaching the front row. They're all crazy cheering for USC. Well, you know, I haven't spotted them. I see a lot of crazies, <laughs> but but I haven't spotted those guys. Now you now you've got me interested. Now I'm going to look next year. You know, the yeah, check them out. UCLA game, huh? Yeah, they're on. Check it out. They're now. on TV all the time. I'm sure you've seen Tommy Trojan all duct taped up and uh, go, you oh know, yeah. yeah. So they, I've seen all of that and the guards and all that, but I didn't know they had a front row seat and all of that. I oh, didn't know yeah. what their names were and so on. Or the, but congratulations. Hey, when you have fun and you have tradition like that and so on, it goes on and on and on from generation to generation. This is what college is about. This is what college football is about. I mean, it's it's just tremendous. All right. So here's some more. We'll go some more of these. Uh, there's a lot of band ones. Um, the band playing in front of Heritage Hall before game days. And uh, I've experienced that firsthand, Coach. We used to do our tailgates right in front of Bovard next to Tommy Trojan. And the band would play in front of 
Heritage Hall, move down a little bit, play in front of uh, where Tommy Trojan is and march over there. And there's the, the drums would warm up in the back of Heritage Hall and the rest of the band would warm up in the front. And uh, it's the campus is crazy. I don't know if you've got to hang around there much, but the, you know everyone's hanging out there. And when the band comes by, that's really like the the you know the the epitome of what everyone's there for they want to hear the band and then you know they follow the band and walking over to the coliseum so it's a pretty fun tradition have you have you been on campus much for that coach you know i don't get on campus much for that because i'm doing the pregame show yeah so i've got to stay over there uh and do the pregame show so i don't get on campus but i see i see it all around man i see i tell you it's it's, it's awesome you know i want to mention another tradition for the usc band every fourth of july uh, a portion of the band, it's not the entire band, but a portion of the band marches on the island of Catalina on their July 4th parade. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah, they come over and uh, stay at the hotel, and the city pays their way, and they have a lot of fun, and they start. They march, march right down the Avalon Boulevard or Fremont Street or whatever it's called, and it, it's great. People are out and cheering and so on, and it's great. So that's another tradition out there. You know, the band really does have a great tradition at USC. They play the entire game. People all all over the world know the the fight songs of USC, and uh, it's great. In fact, uh, one night, you know, I do a USC Trojan talk show uh, from a rest, the Burger Continental in Pasadena. You don't mind me mentioning that? No, band. of course not, Coach. Yeah. And one we- night, you won't believe this. They sent over about 10, I don't know who did it either, 10 of the band members, and they started playing outside the restaurant. <laughs> That's it, great, Coach. It was absolutely awesome. Somebody uh, you know, asked them to come over and made a donation or whatever it is to get them there, and they started playing outside the restaurant. So, you know, the band does do a lot of that, all over at special events and so on, birthday parties and parties and so on, celebrations. And it's great to have them out there. They've got a great name, and, and it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, they play in the liquor games and stuff, too. Jerry Buss has them, some of them up in the rafters, and they'll play, you know, you can hear them beginning of quarters, you know, playing charge and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool. Um, all Let right, me ask you this. What's the tradition about the Shades? I want to ask, uh, if I, we have a band member out there, what's the deal on the Shades? They all wear shades. They all wear that. shades. They, got, they have to be too cool for school. So I don't know. Uh, any band members, there's... Tons of former band members. Email us in. Tell us why you guys all wear the shades. And uh, besides just being cool. All right. Uh, let's go with some more of these. we gotta, we got to get through these pretty quick. Um, kicking the flagpoles, walking over the Coliseum. I don't know if you've done this, Coach, but as you walk, that's one of the first things I learned when I came to orientation at USC. When you walk to the game, there's these flagpoles with these uh, you know, kind of metal bases, and everybody just kicks them as they go by. Have you no, seen? I didn't know that. Yeah, no. so everyone, so you just hear clang, clang, clang. So everyone kicks them as you go by. So try not to get hurt. You kick that. Um, also, you've seen this, of course, lighting the Olympic torch at the beginning of the fourth quarter. So oh at, yeah, that's something. Yeah. yeah, peristyle end of the Coliseum. There's the Olympic torch there, and uh, they have some kind of graphic and stuff now that goes on. But you know, the beginning of the fourth quarter, um, you know, the band starts playing, and then they light the Olympic torch. So that's kind of cool. Um, traveler running around the field after a touchdown he does it kind of a trot up the sidelines now but before he used to you know they had the the track around uh the coliseum and you know when they had the track there because they did all the uh, track and field stuff at the coliseum for the uh, olympics 1932 and 1984 olympics he could uh, run pretty freely around the track now there's no track they've you know took that out so it's 
he can kind of trot up and down the sidelines, but not quite as good as he used. Do you remember when the track was in there, Coach? Oh, I certainly do. It was absolutely awesome. I'll tell you, he used to go and he almost used to run over a few people sometimes. Yeah. It, was, it was great. This is a tradition that uh, maybe people don't get to see. They're usually at the walkthroughs before the games, especially on the road. They do this kind of fat man football. I think they call it Trojan ball or something like that, where all the linemen, you can't run. You have to speed walk, and they, they're throwing passes, and you know the defensive linemen go against the offensive linemen. It's a pretty fun spectacle if you're ever on the road and get to, to watch some of these walkthroughs. But you've probably seen a couple of those, huh, Coach? Well, you know what I've done? I've seen them, I've seen them uh, on tape or, and stuff, but I haven't seen them in person. You know, it's really a loose practice Friday uh, at USC before the game and their walkthroughs. Really a little different than a lot of universities. You know, a lot of universities, it's real serious. There's no talking. It's all, you know, get through the practice, uh, serious. But at SCP, Carroll really likes his players to be loose and relaxed. And they do. He throws the ball around, too, to oh, people. Yeah. And they, it's a whole different atmosphere. You know, he has his philosophy on what he does, and uh, he certainly gets his players ready to play on game day, and, and whatever he's doing works. And it's a little bit different than normal, let's say, normal philosophies. If you go to and watch a lot of these walkthroughs, they're normally real serious. No talking, nothing. But at SC, it's a lot different. I mean, even the way they dress, you know, real casual, no, no special uniform, yeah, it's a it's a it's a real uh, a different approach. It did, and I, you know you got to like the way Pete Carroll does it. Obviously, it's working, so uh, I'm sure USC fans don't mind that at all. Oh uh, no. no, oh no, it works. Yes. People are probably trying to switch over. Yeah, <laughs> uh, some of the uniforms, um, no names on the back of the jerseys. A lot of people like that. Uh, the gray face masks um, on the, uh, the the helmets. I don't think they always did that. Um, and then in black shoes, I guess they're not doing that as much now, but I think that was an older one that, that people liked having the, uh, all the Trojans wear black shoes. Right. And, uh, I, I, you know, there aren't many universities left that don't have their, uh, Jersey of the players names on their back. And, you know, that, that is something that's been a part of USC football. I don't believe they've ever had them on their back. It's we're a team. We're not individuals. Uh, if we do something great, they'll announce our name. We do, people can't read them really from the sideline anyway or up in the stands unless they've got binoculars on them anyway. So just make people know who you are by the way you play. And uh, I used to have the same philosophy when I coached. I never had names on the back either. I said, hey, you know, if, if you want your name called, do something great on the football field. And then if you, you know, without names, then one of the things is you can have uh, legacy numbers and there's been a few of those recently, and uh, some people asked how they started. I'm not really sure on this one. I mean, the biggest number at USC, obviously, is number 55, and uh, you can go back to Junior Seau uh, back in the late 80s, uh, Willie McGinnis, Chris Claiborne, Marcus Steele, who ended up getting drafted by the Cowboys, Keith Rivers recently, and I, I thought maybe, I think Seau must have been the first, but um, I thought it was Jack Del Rio, but he actually wore number 52. He wore 55 in uh, the NFL at least part of his career, but I, I think he wore number 52 at USC. So that one probably started with uh, Junior Seau. And there's no number 55 on the team right now, Coach. Um, there is it, is there? No, but you know, maybe one of the linebackers coming in will get it. We'll have to see. And a couple other ones. They used to have 35, used to be a big linebacker number. Guys like Ricky Gray and Scott Ross wore those. Uh, 42 was a big one after Ronnie Lott 
Um, guys like Brian Kelly and Chris Richard wore that number, but you know, then they had Dallas Sartre wear it and he was a linebacker. So some of them kind of come in and out of favor. I mean, maybe the number one with the receiver position, there's no, you know, there's no receiver right now, but Mike Williams and Patrick Turner, guys that kind of wore that. We'll see if one of the young receivers coming in, will get that. But the biggest one is obviously number 55. There's been a, that's kind of the one that they followed the great tradition. And it's, it's harder on offense coach. Cause if you win the Heisman, they retire your number. So if you're really that good, then you can't wear that number anymore. Uh, but it seems to be a fun defensive tradition. Let me ask you, is someone wearing number 20 now? Mike Garrett's number? No, that was, um, Darnell was Bing. They, yeah. They brought yeah. it out of the retirement for Darnell Bing, but that was it. That was it. Huh? Yeah. So it's, no, they didn't reissue it, huh? No, they haven't reissued that one yet. So we'll, we'll see. Okay. No one's wearing 42. Now 35 is actually worn by a linebacker, Juana uh, Cavienga. And we'll see if number one or number 55 gets picked up. Uh, some of the incoming freshmen that are coming in and a uh, couple, couple uh points on the song girls. People love the tradition of the sweaters for the song girls. And, um, the fact that they would dance at Heritage Hall on Friday before the games for the players and fans will come by. They did a couple of people mentioned the uh, push-ups by the Yell leaders and the Yell leaders don't exist anymore, but they used to do like form a T and do push-ups after scores and stuff. So there's some of the uh, you probably remember those guys, right, Coach? You know, I do remember those guys, and and I really do uh, think there's a great tradition in the cheerleaders. You know, uh, I got song to girls. know the cheerleaders one coach. year. They're song girls. Yeah. They call, uh, they, song girls. Song girl, yeah. <laughs> All right, song girls. I know they like to be called. They like to be called. Do they like to be called song girls? Yes, they don't. Like, they're they have to say they're not cheerleaders. They say they're song girls. So. They're song girls. Yes. Okay. I wanted. I don't want to get anybody mad at me. Okay. No problem. But uh, but uh, I had a couple of the girls on my show, and it was really interesting talking to them. Do you realize that they have to try out every year? It's not an automatic thing. It's not something that if you get it as a junior, that you're going to be back as a senior. You have to try out every single year, and they buy all their own equipment and all of that stuff. It's absolutely a an honor. It's something that you go to SC, or as little girls, they think about being song girls, and it is really a special tradition. It, it really is, and you can think of all the events they have to be at, really, when the when you have your entire season football, basketball, you have all these banquets you have to go to during the Rose Parade. They walk down the Rose Parade, then they go to the Rose Bowl game. I mean, it is absolutely fabulous. And once you've been a song girl at SC, you remember just that. I mean, I know that when I talked to her, well, she was a song girl in 1962 at USC or so on. So it, it is really uh, a distinctive thing to be a song girl at USC. You are introduced that as a coach or or something you've got something that you you have tagged on to you forever. Cool. Yeah. All right. I agree with you, Coach. And uh, it's probably the most one of the most recognizable uh, parts of college football is the USC Song Girls. So it's a great tradition. Um, there's a lot, couple more. I just want to get through them real quick because we got to get out of here. But uh, playing Tusk, the the marching band playing Tusk, where everyone in the crowd screams UCLA sucks. Uh, that was actually there. They have a platinum album, Coach. I don't know if you know the band had that. They played on the actual Fleetwood Mac album so i think a lot of people enjoy that and they love they love hearing that song um the uh, the drum major in the beginning of the game uh spiking his sword in the middle of the coliseum um, right. that's always a good one and uh the, the trojan walk is a fairly new one pete carroll started that where a lot of the fans can kind of line up outside the coliseum and the and the players when they enter the coliseum they kind of you know give high fives to everybody and they all kind of cheer them up and uh this last one 
uh, from Allie. She was actually on Facebook, so thanks for listening, Allie. Um, it's a, it's kind of a new one too, I think. When USC defeats a team, the quarterback or some of the stars of the the um, the team come out and they lead the student body when the the Trojan marching band plays Conquest. And you saw like Ray Maluga, Mark Sanchez do that after the Rose Bowl victory over Penn State. And that's that's a good tradition as well. I mean, it's, it's gone back to Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush, and uh, so I think you're starting to see that. Not for every game, but for the the really big games, you'll see the players come up and, and kind of lead the band when they play Conquest. Yeah, I've seen all of that. I think it's great. I really do. And I love to see the players get close to the fans and close to the student body like that. And uh, that's all, you know, you know, you talk about those things. And that's why players go to USC or go to schools where there is that type of tradition that they can talk about it. They've seen it as little kids as they watch television or if they go to the game and so on. They see these things, they remember these things, and they want to do those things. All right, Coach. Well, we went a little long this thing, but that's okay. There's a lot to talk about. Um, thanks very much to Jack for that idea. There's really cool stuff in there. And, uh, you know, thanks to Jeff in uh, Copenhagen for sending in that running back question. And, uh, Coach, thank you, and we will talk to you again next week. And thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, please keep those questions coming. I enjoy them very much. And uh, you guys have a great week, okay? All right. Everyone else, really quick, 30-second break, and we're going to talk to Dan Wecky about Coach Tim Floyd. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Abraham, and we are joined by USCFootball.com beat writer, Dan Weike. Hello, Dan. What's going on today? Uh, nothing, Ryan. Just uh, trying to get my bearings back after a pretty crazy 24 hours. It's been a little crazy uh, out of the blue. I was actually getting my hair cut, and for Dan stopped in took pictures of me getting a haircut which is a little strange i don't know why i did that but as he's leaving he's like tim floyd resigned it's like whoa so we're jumping all over that um i guess what was your first initial reaction to when that happened um i guess you know um it didn't it didn't really surprise me I, i don't think that's the right word i guess the timing of it was suspect um to me just that it happened now versus you know a couple weeks ago or you know later down the line i think you know at this point it's still kind of just sketchy exactly what happened, what was done, who did what. Um, I don't think that this is an admission of guilt by Tim Floyd to resign. I don't think that was the intention. I've talked to some people, some sources who are, are, are you know, close to Floyd and people who have, are, have spoken to people close to Floyd kind of second-handed. And, um, you know, the, one of the things that, that's come up is that, you know, that that's not a um, – that hasn't been – this isn't him, I guess, admitting he's wrong. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. Excuse me. Um, this isn't him saying, you know what, I, I did this, I, I, I need to take the fall. This is him saying that I don't want to fight this, that this is going to be something that is not going to go away. Um, I guess something that I tried to write earlier in the article was that 
you know, the damage is already done here, and it's best for him just to walk away. He took a settlement. Um, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll cash a couple of checks, and, you know, he'll be done with it. He's probably done coaching in college basketball. Well, yeah, he said was, this was the last job he kind of, you know, that he wanted. And, uh, I mean, it was you – know, you, you took a little heat for the article that you wrote, but, I mean, there, the stuff – the accusations out there, not saying that any of them are true or not, but there was enough that – I mean, there was it, there's some pretty damning evidence, and you know, there's the mess isn't cleaned up yet. You know, I mean, maybe that helps with the NCAA investigation. It's hard to say, but there could still be some rough times ahead for USC basketball. Oh, it's going to get worse. Um, there, there's almost no doubt. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to to speak with uh, ESPN college basketball analyst slash expert slash just all around good guy, uh, Fran Fraschilla today, and um, you know, I point blank asked him. I was like, "Is there any chance that USC can be good next year?" He's like, "No." There isn't, um, you know, but they can start the process. And, and, you know, he seemed to think that, you know, that there are going to be darker times ahead, that this is going to be kind of a situation where it's going to take two, maybe three years to to get back close to where USC was two years ago, three uh, last season. Um, it's going to be a difficult process. Yeah, I talked to one of my contacts um, that's that's really close to the entire basketball program, and he said he felt that it was for a couple of days. It happened on Tuesday. I think he kind of knew probably like on Sunday that this was coming down. And uh, was this contact Rodney Guillory? No, no. I, me and oh. Rodney. I, yeah, I don't. He's not my BFF anymore. No, I've never met Rodney. So just that was just a he joke. Kicked you out of the circle too? Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he missed a lot. There was a, a coach's tour that he was on, and it was a little. Um, people would post reports on our message boards. It's a little uncomfortable. I mean, Pete Carroll talking about things everyone loves. Listening to Tim Floyd talk, he wouldn't really answer questions about the investigation and stuff. So it was, it was just kind of like, and you know, all these guys had left the program and recruits were, you know, getting out of their LOI. So there really wasn't much positive to talk about. And he didn't show up for the one, I believe it was San Francisco and then San Diego. And, uh, you know, I think the writing was kind of on the wall at that point. Missing one might be one thing, but missing two of those, and you kind of knew something was up there. And um, I, the other thing I talked about, Dan, and the, the one thing that, you know, Rodney Guillory was around the program back in 2000. Jeff Trepanier, you know, he got in trouble. There was, you know, there, he was a known um, runner and a, a known all-around not good guy to have around your basketball program. And mm-hmm. I think if the one thing that you could say is, well, if anything, whatever Floyd did wrong, one of the things he did was shouldn't have allowed this guy to be around the program. And I've been saying that the whole time. I and mean, you don't know what happened. I don't know if money was exchanged, whatever, but he wasn't a good guy that you would even really want around the program. But my contact was saying that, you know, every top recruit that you're going to bring in has a Rodney Guillory. Like there's, there's no, there's no getting around it. If you're going to talk to these, these guys that are high profile, going to be lottery picks. They all have guys that are, kind of seedy like a Rodney Guillory with them so he wasn't kind of putting as much blame on Floyd for that and you know maybe maybe that's true but Guillory was a guy that people knew around this program specifically as being a potential problem so I don't, I don't know if you talked to anyone about that or what your thoughts on that are Dan yeah I mean that was something that you know me, me and Fred actually had a chance to talk about too a little bit was that you know I mean he went as far as to say any of the top 50 high school players in the country are, you're, are gonna be players you're gonna have to go through people that you probably shouldn't be going through to, to talk to them and to recruit them, stuff like that. I think you just, it's all about knowing what you're getting into. Um, and I think if there was you, a, a sin, a, a real sin committed by Tim Floyd, it was underestimating the the negative impact of having OJ Mayo around and having Rodney Guillory around. 
and then being willing to do it again two years later by taking Renardo Sidney. I think that was kind of, in a way, a slap in the face to to a lot of people. Um, you know, the program's already in some hot water because of the initial Mayo investigations, which, you know, kind of were more outside the program, stuff that he didn't, you know, it was more about Guillory and Lewis Johnson. Their, Floyd's name wasn't really mentioned um, at that point. But to take somebody who, who, again, has a lot of red flags, I think raised a lot of eyebrows. I know it certainly caught me off guard, and I didn't think it was a wise decision. It didn't show that he learned anything from the, from the male situation. I don't know. It, you know, it, college basketball is really dirty. I mean, there's – the recruiting is just, ugh, it's scummy. And it's unfortunate, and I, I don't know if there's a way to fix it. I think whoever they bring in is going to have to be really, really disciplined and very adept at, at working within the rules. I think that's going to be a number one priority. Speaking of who they're going to bring in, I mean, you we, you put a piece up yesterday on the site. What uh, and you know, there's some names out there that you've been hearing, and, and what do you think the timeline is for trying to get somebody bringing somebody in? I mean, I've heard that they want to do it quickly, but. I don't know that that's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, if they, I mean, they're going to need a head coach and they're going to need one fairly soon. You don't want to go into the too far into the summer without a head coach. I mean, this is a major recruiting period. Um, but you know, some of the names that I think some of the guys that I like, some that are on the list, some that weren't, um, I think Reggie Theus is a real possibility. I think there might be some concerns though, that, you know, he was a guy that, you know, wants to be an NBA coach. He only stayed at New Mexico State for two years, kind of left, took some questionable character guys there maybe. Um, I think Lon Kruger would be a wonderful choice. I'm not sure he would leave UNLV, though. Um, you know, there, there's there's guys out there that I like. Um, there are guys out there that I'm just not 100% sure on. You know, I like Bill Greer at San Diego. He didn't have a great year this year. But, um, you know, he did a great job down there. He's from the Gonzaga system. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know I caught some heat from Steve Levin. I don't think that's really a possibility. I like Scott <laughs> Drew a lot, too. Um, some people don't like him because he rubs some people the wrong way, but he rebuilt a program in far worse shape than USC. I mean, Baylor had players killing each other. You know what I mean? Like That's like that's bad. That's, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> you know, and the coach may be covering up some of it and stuff like that. I mean, it's just not a, bad situ- not a good situation. Um, this is going to be bad news, people. I don't think they're going to get Jamie Dixon. I just can't imagine why he would take this job now um there's a stink right now to usc basketball unfortunately and whoever's going to take this job has to be a coach that's driven and and maybe has a little bit of an ego to the extent to say you know what i can turn something around and and build something special somewhere and i think that's what it's going to take yeah i mean it's it's unfortunate i think a lot of the usc fans are are upset because they're feeling that like the media and every that's what fueled all of this and it's unfortunate and it's you know it might be the wrong place, wrong time, and it's hard to you know put all the blame on Floyd. I'm sure he has to get some of this, but all these top guys, I mean, everyone that we've talked to in the national media, they all say the same thing. It's not you know every guy has money filtered to their their people, you know, and they have these guys you know that you know about them since they were young, and they get these people hanging around them, and they become their entourage or whatever, and it happens to every single one. There's no like top three prospect or top 10 prospect in the country or, or even what Fran was saying top 50 that doesn't have stuff like this going on and it's just are you gonna you know get caught or not and uh it, they gotta fix it somehow because it's just happening everywhere this isn't an isolated incident it's just 
it's happening all the time and it's almost like accepted practice in college basketball right now yeah i mean there's there's just no real way around it it's, it's just just really filthy and it's it's not fun to cover it's not fun to watch um it's just ugly you know and it's something that i don't think anybody's really in favor of you know i'm sure people will say that tim floyd was just playing the game doing what he had to do and you know that may or may not be true but you know again i just yeah he got caught you know he like and there are other guys that don't get caught and maybe part of it had to do maybe usc has a, a little bit of a target on its back because of the success it's had because of where it's located and stuff like that that's definitely a possibility I mean, also part of it could be that he just misjudged people's characters, went with like sort of a, a repeat offender and, and Rodney Gilly by bringing him into the circle a little bit. And then just the way the chips fell with Lewis Johnson talking and stuff like that. I mean, just like maybe he was just unlucky, you know? That's probably really what it boils down to is he probably was just unlucky with this, that he, that he got caught and now he's going to pay for it. And unfortunately, it looks like he's going to pay for it with his career. I, I cannot at this point in time see him getting back on a college sideline anytime soon. And and that's sad. Yeah. I mean, none of this, none of this ever comes up unless Lewis Johnson doesn't feel slighted and goes on ESPN and tells his story true or not or whatever. But I mean, there's gotta be some, I mean, I'm sure this isn't 100% made up. I mean, there's gotta be something to it, but if he, yeah, there's enough smoke there, Ryan. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. But I mean, I, I know that, you know, he's a felon and that, you know, people don't, they don't trust his credibility, and I don't really trust his credibility either. But the fact is, I mean, if he's not feeling slighted and goes on ESPN and tells all that and produces receipts or whatever he's doing, I mean, no one will ever even find out about this. So that's what, you know. Probably not. Yeah. And then, but how many times could that have happened to every single guy that's been recruited in the top of these recruiting classes every single year? It's just, it's unlucky for OJ Mayo, you could say, that this was a guy that was in his camp and the one that ended up turning on him. Yeah, but I mean, O.J. Mayo's situation was different, though, too. I mean, he was old. He had gone to seemingly like 39 different high schools, um, you know, was bounced around. Like, I mean, it's rare when there's a player that high profile who could help a team, and, and, and a lot of teams don't want to touch him. You know, there's a, re- there's a reason why he ended up at USC and not Duke and not North Carolina and, and not Texas or, or, you know, even Arizona or, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a reason why he went to a school that needed him, you know, a place where he could be the savior, supposedly. And I think those other schools kind of knew that it probably wasn't worth the risk unless we absolutely had to have him. Tim Floyd felt like USC absolutely had to have O.J. Mayo. It got him into the tournament for one year, maybe helped him in recruiting, you know, getting a guy like DeMar DeRozan, but ultimately it cost him his job. Ultimately it probably cost USC a winning record for the next two years. I mean, like I said, it's a really sad situation. There's just, it's going to be difficult for whoever takes this job to rebuild. And, you know, there, there's a plan here, though. I, I do think there is a plan. Um, Fran Fraschilla mentioned this to me, and I, I think it's a great point, is that, you know, you look at Indiana with Kelvin Sampson. I mean, that was as disasters go. I mean, that's as bad of a hire as you hiring me. You know, that, that's <laughs> right. That's like right up there. It's pretty bad, and, yeah. Yeah, no, like terrible decision. And, you know, so what they do is they give they, they find a guy like Tom Crean who's strong-willed, maybe has a little bit of an ego, and, you know, they give him a 10-year contract, and they say, you have time. Fix us. You know, and maybe that's what it's going to take. You throw a boatload of money at somebody and give them a bunch of years, you know, you probably maybe you might be able to get a pretty good coach. 
I just don't think it'll be Jamie Dixon. I think, you know, there's other guys. Maybe Billy Gillespie is a name, former Kentucky coach. Um, is a guy, um, the Sam Aries coach's name is escaping me right now. Is a guy who, who, who could be, you know, there. Dan Monson at Long Beach State is a guy who's won at other places. Not a super dynamic personality, but, you know, he hasn't had trouble with the NCAA. Won at Gonzaga. Didn't win at Minnesota. It's kind of bounced around since then. Um, it's just whatever Mike Garrett does. This is and I, if it's Mike Garrett's decision, that's a whole other topic. Whoever makes this decision, it's an important one because it's really going to help define the next probably ten years of USC basketball. If they hire the right guy within four years, this should all be an afterthought. If they don't hire the right guy within in four years, they're going to have to start all over again. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, thanks very much for your insights on that, and uh, we'll. Keep track on uscfootball.com. We'll have all kinds of updates on this as the story continues to develop. But thanks again for joining us. Yeah, but no, no problem. And workouts started, too, by the way. Yeah, we got workouts started. And, uh, we'll be talking about that next week for sure. Um, everyone else, stay tuned. We're going to have a quick break, and we're going to talk to Gerard Martinez and Brian Bonifee about USC football recruiting. You are listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. Hey, USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. In this segment, we're going to talk some USC recruiting, answer your questions, and talk about the camps that have been going on. We have frequent contributor to the podcast, uscfootball.com recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Gerard, how are you doing today? Doing good. Uh, just... Uh... We're in between camps and uh, trying not to burn ourselves out here with the recruiting coverage. Lots going on. May evaluation periods are over with. Now we've got camp season coming up in June. Uh, but we also have another guest. We're going to have a little uh, mini conference call on the podcast this week talking recruiting. He's a frequent contributor to uscfootball.com, but first timer on the podcast, Brian Bonifee. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Um, like Gerard said, it's getting pretty busy with recruiting now, so got to double up the coverage and stuff. Lots going on, as you said, so we're going to help out. And uh, we had Zach on last week. Everyone loved that, and I'm sure they're going to enjoy what you have to say, Brian. So thank you for joining us. Um, we got a we got a question, and Gerard and Brian, I don't know if you know this, but Gerard loves the international questions, and he missed two questions of international flavor last week when he couldn't make it on the podcast. So we got another one for him this week. It's from... Uh, Jeff in, uh, from Copenhagen, Denmark, and um, he actually asked a team question as well. It's kind of a philosophical question, but I'll, I'll go through it. He's like, um, how can anyone accurately identify a high-profile recruit as a junior, sophomore, or even a freshman? Back in high school, there were guys who dominated as sophomores and juniors, but then uh, faded when everyone else caught up senior year. And on the other side of it, there were guys who were in the shadows, and then they blew up their senior year, maybe like the second half of the season. So his question was, when is early too early, and is all the recent interest in recruiting this early recruiting just for the media and the fans? I guess we'll start with you, Gerard. Get your thoughts on that. Well, it's a great question. Um, and it is kind of a philosophical question because, 
you know, is it the media following what the schools are doing, or is it the schools being able to benefit from the media coverage early on? And it's, it's kind of both, because you do have more exposure for high school kids nowadays, and you do see more high school games on TV, and there's more out there with the Internet uh, disseminated about kids. So it's easier to get that information. It's a little easier to do evaluations and know who you want to get tape on. Um, but at the same time, you know, the recruiting services like Rivals.com, I think that they're obviously following a little bit of what these schools are doing as well because their offers are going out earlier. So you do see schools going in and starting to do their evaluations on sophomores and juniors. When it's too early, early, I think that maybe too early is probably sophomore. I think that, you know, you start to look at the end of the sophomore year and you see, you know, who was really productive as a varsity player and the kid starts to get a little bit of a name out there. But I think that's too early to actually, you know, watch a lot of film and say, well, this is the kind of kid that we have and, you know, we want to offer based on this. I think that's too early to do that. But, you know, going into that junior year, I think more and more schools nowadays, and they're doing a lot of evaluation right off that junior film, and you're seeing most of these offers go out from that junior year. So I think, you know, too early, probably, you know, early sophomore year, but then it, then it changes. You go into that junior year, and I think it's not too early, at least from what the schools are doing. And obviously, like I said, you know, the, the rivals, I mean, that's kind of, I think, what's pushed up the coverage in terms of, you know, the Rivals 100 coming out a little earlier than it has and star rankings coming out earlier than it has. Um, you know, it's just a necessity for having to, hey, we got to talk about these kids. They're already getting offers at this point. So it is a definitely a little bit of both, and uh, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it definitely pushes up the timetable uh, for our own evaluations in terms of coverage. What do you think there, Brian? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with the jargon. It's a difficult question to answer because you have the media competition, obviously, and one website wants to put out a list before another website. That's just normal competition. The problem is I think it's more a reaction to what programs are doing, uh, like offering kids in, you know, before they finish their sophomore years. We'll take USC Skills Camp, for example, this weekend. Uh, a big focus of that camp it's going to be underclassmen, 2011 kids, might even get some verbal offers. And USC is even more conservative when it comes to throwing out early offers than other schools like Texas A&M, uh, Nebraska. Some of the West Coast schools throw out 2011 offers even earlier. So it's, a tough, uh, it's tough to evaluate. I think it's a little bit dependent on position when it's too early. I think running backs, wideouts uh, have a little more physical development early on, and you can kind of tell – who are the top guys going to be? You knew Julio Jones and A.J. Green, those types of guys, were going to be you know, five-star guys two years in advance. But with quarterbacks, linemen, linebackers, the other positions, if you're evaluating based on sophomore tape, that leads to a lot of missed evaluations. And I think the, the programs who do that are creating even, even bigger risk because you get a lot of missed evaluations, and then you're, you're kind of, your roster kind of has a lot of dead weight on it. So um, I think it's basically program-driven, but – you know, it's a, it's a back and forth thing. You know, the, uh, it's, it's funny with the sports here. If, you know, you knew LeBron James was going to be a superstar in like seventh grade. It's, I, I don't know why it's so different with basketball, but just the physical developments in football, you know, I think like the, um, you know, like, uh, who was that? Jeff, Jeff from Copenhagen said, I mean, it, guys will mature later and stuff, and you, you'll get guys. I mean, you see like a Clay Matthews and stuff, and he, you know, he turns into a uh, first day NFL draft pick you know, from a walk on and stuff. I think it takes the bodies a little bit longer to develop, and, and it's a challenge, I think, for coaches, for recruiting services, media, whatever, because you do have to kind of look at the potential and see if this person is has this person tapped out and they're as good as they're going to be in high school, or do they have a lot of upside to get a lot better. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I agree. Um, 
there are different sports, and you can evaluate differently per sport. Um, but, you know, as Brian talked about specifically with linemen, I think you're looking at more physical development. There's more going on to a lineman uh, in terms of weight and how a player carries that weight, how that frame is able to kind of develop uh, in football. And that's kind of why you have to take a step back and look and go, okay, this kid's 260 now. You know, in three, you know, two, three years, he could be over 300 pounds. And then you don't know whether he can really carry that weight and can be agile. Um, he has good feet. There's a lot of things that go into it. So I think the more weight you put on a kid and the bigger you expect him to be, that's really where the projection comes. And that's really where you have to kind of be careful and not just go, you know, all in and say, hey, you know, this kid's uh, 280 pounds and he's 6'5 as a sophomore. Let's offer him now. Well, you know what, he, he could be way out, of way, way out of whack once he starts to put that weight on him. All of a sudden, he's not as quick as agile or as aggressive as he was as a sophomore. And Brian, you mentioned um, you know program-specific. I, I think that you would see Pete Carroll was always hesitant to give out early offers, and they like to you know see people in their own camps and wait as long as possible to give out the offers, but because other programs were giving out offers quicker, it was kind of like an arms race. And so you know, it was almost like forced Pete Carroll's hand that he had to give out offers earlier. Yeah, exactly. Offers, throwing out offers is really as much part of a recruiting game against other programs as it is your personal evaluation. Um, we, I read the article from Zach uh, the other day where he's basically outlining that the kids who would normally get offers at Rising Stars uh, in a couple weeks are getting offered before Rising Stars because, you know, Pete Carroll's hand is forced with other national programs like Notre Dame, uh, even UCLA offering kids way before USC does, if you wait too long on those kids, that becomes a big negative recruiting tool. And then, and you know, so you have to go out and evaluate these kids during the May evaluation period, offer them then to get them to the camp. And then that's kind of how the process has changed. And to be honest with the competition from uh, mid-level programs, offering kids earlier and earlier, I don't think it's going to change. I think eventually you're going to see this process kind of become like basketball where you're, where it's normal to offer kids as a sophomore, where as opposed to three or four years ago before the big internet recruiting boom, it was not normal to offer even juniors before halfway through their season. All right, cool stuff. Thanks to uh, Jeff and Copenhagen for that question. And of course, if you have more questions, podcast at uscfootball.com. We love the international questions. I think it's like five or six countries we've had questions from besides the United States. Awesome. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I love it. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about camps. Uh, UCLA, we're in the middle of camps. I mean, they're just getting started, I guess. But UCLA had a camp over the weekend. And uh, you guys were down there. Maybe you get, Gerard, maybe start with you, get some thoughts on what happened at that camp. Well, it, uh, it was a good camp uh, for two positions, uh, quarterback and, and defensive back. And I think it's one of those camps where you saw, you know, not maybe the, the, the top, top end guys, uh, at defensive back there, but you see how deep it is for California, Southern California, uh, for the secondary position. I mean, you just you have to marvel when guys like Kevin McDonald and Shaq Richardson are, are you know down on your board as maybe the eighth, ninth best cornerbacks in the state, and they're guys out there and they're shutting down pretty good receivers. And it was one of those years where you just you've got good height with guys, and you've got uh, really you know the fundamentals. I think of a lot of defensive backs in this class are really ahead of the curve. And, uh, you know, we watch guys, and, you know, Tevin McDonald, I think, just got his offer from UCLA. 
great bloodlines as a kid that's, you know, in that 5'10 range and uh, just played great. You know, I mean, he's got, he's got so much potential, and he's really played more safety in high school than he has a cornerback. So he's still kind of alone in that position a little bit. But we saw him down there at the, uh, the underclassman combine uh, in San Antonio, and he was really good. And he came back to UCLA, and he was, you know, even better. He's actually progressed a little bit. So as a kid, you still have to watch out for, especially if you're an SC fan, knowing that his dad, Tim McDonald Sr., and his brother's TJ McDonald. You know, there's maybe some upside with that kid. Uh, and then you have Shaq Richardson, who UCLA offered on the spot. You know, I mean, he's a guy who's probably a good 6'1", uh, probably about 180 pounds, long, really rangy type kid, uh, was controlling the line of scrimmage. Um, he's another guy that fundamentally is just very advanced. And that's probably the, the thing about him. And maybe why he doesn't have a ton of scholarship offers and still – sort of an under-radar guy because a lot of people think, well, you know, he's doing it with fundamentals. Maybe he's not the most athletic guy, talented guy out there. Uh, but he was pretty good at UCLA. Um, looking down at, you know, Josh Shaw. I mean, Joshua Shaw is a guy, now he's a national recruit. And uh, USC offered him just a couple weeks ago, came down to UCLA. He wasn't uh, quite as dominant, I think, as uh, some of the other cornerbacks, uh, but he had an ankle injury, and he was kind of coming off of that. But this is a kid who's 6'1", 180, very physical. I mean, he gets up on the line of scrimmage in press coverage, and he can dominate just about any receiver. Playing off the line of scrimmage, I think he's not quite as comfortable, and we kind of have to see how he does you know, in the Rising Stars camp uh, in that situation where he's got to play in space and got to be up on his heels a little more. But, uh, again, I mean, you you got three kids there that just really good players. And the guy who's maybe under the radar, the diamond in the rough of them all is Anthony Brown, who a lot of people look at as a running back. Every camp, every combine we see this kid, he is great. I mean, he's just great. He's one of the top players if he's not the top player. And he's been among some very talented players, and he still is able to stand out. And he did that Saturday. He was at UCLA, started out playing running back, flipped over to defensive back, played some corner, and was just great. He was in the hip pocket of every receiver they had out there. And, uh, you know, Paul Richardson was the kid that was kind of dominating as a receiver. He's uh, UCLA commit that decommitted just a couple weeks ago and was at the camp and still sounds like UCLA is in the lead and, and he likes UCLA a lot, but he decided to kind of back off his verbal commitment. He was like the receiver there. I mean, he was kind of the, the main guy, the most talented player, the guy that had really uh, that, that kind of extra ability, that special ability. He wasn't able to actually participate in the afternoon camp, but was there in the morning. So we didn't get to see Anthony Brown against Paul Richardson so much, but we saw Anthony Brown against everybody else and Anthony Brown was really good. And again, that's just kind of showing the depth that you have in this class. And it's just, it's, it's just kind of like, wow, you know. It's, it's amazing to see as many quarterbacks. And I tell you one thing, Pete Carroll is going to be smiling. He's going to be grinning ear to ear being a former defensive back coach in the NFL. And that's kind of like his thing is still DBs. When he brings these guys into the Rising Stars camp, and he's going to see all this talent uh, that he has to choose from. And then you're going to you know include guys like Demetrius Wright, who were even at UCLA this past weekend. All right. Well, that's got to be weird for Richardson uh, being at UCLA, commit, decommitting, and then showing up at the camp. Was there any uh... – did it seem a little weird there? Was there any tension? No, it wasn't tension. It was definitely UCLA went out of the way to make him feel comfortable. He showed up a little late, and we were kind of checking out, you know, to see what the reaction was going to be. And he gave uh, uh, Reggie Moore, their, uh, their, their wide receivers coach, a big hug. And, you know, it was definitely they were, they were trying to kind of reinstall it. You know, hey, we still love you. We still want you at UCLA. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. It's, it, we'll see how that kind of progresses as he takes visits and, and other schools start to really become competition because he hasn't really seen anything 
uh, but UCLA, and he is going to be at the Rising Stars camp here uh, in a couple weeks, and that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out when he has some interaction with the USC coaches, and we'll see you know, how USC begins to start recruiting him. They really haven't recruited him to this point. I mean, at this point, it's kind of been a little hands-off. He's been UCLA's commit. They've gone after other receivers. We'll see how he performs at the Rising Stars camp. Um, you know, he's a good 6'1", 180 pounds. Definitely another one of those slot receiver guys. I mean, you know, talk about the depth of the defensive back this year. Well, that same kind of depth is at the slot receiver position for the Z and for the Y. Just not a lot of big guys out there, but there's plenty of guys that are in that 6'1", 180-pound range. And uh, Paul Richardson just actually um, transferred to Sarah High School with Robert Woods and George Farmer. So that's going to be a heck of a trio of what receivers are going to have there next year. And we're going to see him play, you know, side-by-side with those guys at the Rising Stars camp. So we'll see if he can get an offer from USC or uh, at least kind of start raising some eyebrows. Yeah, we had an article recently on uscfootball.com. You can check that out on Richardson and that all-star cast of receivers they have over there at uh, Sarah High School. But, Brian, uh, you know, you were down there at the UCLA camp as well. Was there any uh, standout guys from that you saw or anything that stood out for you in the whole camp? Well, I have to echo what Gerard said. The defensive backs were clearly the strongest group of the camp, which kind of mirrors the uh, the what it is in California. I mean, defensive backs, running backs, very strong across the board this year. But uh, in contrast, I was looking at a surprise group, and I think that the position that's been uh, downgraded a little bit this year because there's no Matt Barkley, there's no Jimmy Clausen, Mark Sanchez as quarterbacks. Um, and surprisingly, there were a few kids there who were really accurate, uh, really impressive. California every year will produce quarterbacks who can play in the Pac-10, um, so it's no surprise to me. But it'll be a little bit of a surprise nationally when these guys get bumped up in ranking. Um, one guy is Brett Nottingham, about a 6'2", 6'2 210-pound quarterback from Monte Vista up in Northern California. Actually, the successor to Drew McAllister, who was Monte Vista's quarterback before Nottingham took over. And he's not going to blow you away physically. Uh, he doesn't have the strongest arm. Uh, like I said, only about six two and a half, but very accurate, great timing, great anticipation. Uh, was very impressive all camp, and he was drawing rave reviews from the Berkeley Elite Eleven camp a few weeks ago, where the rivals national guys were there. We're stunned that he didn't have any Pac-10 offers at this point. He still doesn't have any Pac-10 offers, but that's about to change. I think Stanford uh, might look at him, UCLA might look at him if they don't land some of their national guys, and he's a guy who's going to be camping at Rising Stars for that elusive quarterback offer from USC. So he's one of the guys I'd watch out for this month in terms of how his stock rises, and maybe he challenges a guy like Jesse Scroggins for that USC offer. And um, another guy I want to mention is a, a quarterback from Illinois named Taylor Graham, who none of us actually knew anything about him coming into the camp, didn't actually know his name until about halfway through, but he was very impressive. Um, about 6'4", 210 pounds, actually the son of Kent Graham, who used to play in the NFL, but he didn't have any early offers because he broke. He had an injury his junior year, missed almost his entire season. And so that's kind of delayed the evaluation process. But he's been getting offered. He got offered right after the camp by Norm Chow um, from UCLA. He's going to camp at Ohio State. He'll probably get an offer from them. Uh, just just another example of how hard it is to evaluate the quarterback position. I was, we were talking about that earlier. Uh, you, it's very hard position to evaluate, even from colleges. You've got to see these guys throw in person. And Taylor Grams actually doesn't have a ranking, no stars from rivals at this point. But, I mean, we've seen guys like Nick Montana who have offers from everyone, um, local guys, national guys. I honestly haven't seen a kid as impressive as this Taylor Graham kid. Could end up seeing him one of the top-ranked guys in this class. So there's a few guys uh, nationally in the quarterback class just because there's no 
five-star premier guy doesn't mean that USC can't get a quality quarterback in. Uh, we'll probably offer one at the Rising Stars camp. All right. So, uh, cool. we got the UCLA camp stuff, and then there's uh, the skills camp coming up this weekend, skills and linemen. Um, we don't have a ton of time. Gerard, maybe give us a few thoughts on uh, what you know USC fans can expect coming up to this weekend. Well, it's, it's an interesting camp because you have the Rising Stars looming, and it seems like that's become such a big camp nationally that – all the kids want to go there. You know, they want to compete against the kids from Florida. They want to pe- compete against the kids from Georgia and Southeast. And it kind of seems like, you know, everybody, that, that camp is kind of sucking up all the talent a little bit here. Uh, so skills camp has changed a little bit. It's now more for under-the-radar guys. And, uh, and then Sunday you have following the lineman camp. So, again, you know, lineman, it's not a real big year uh, in California. It's not a really great year nationally for offensive linemen. So we're going to have to see some guys that, you know, if USC can find kind of a diamond in the rough there. Um, you've got a kid like Zach Dilley from uh, Paloma Valley here, out here in the Inland Empire, who's about 6'5", 285, and is a tackle that getting some looks. I mean, a lot of these kids right now are the UTEP, uh, Nevada, um, you know, Oregon State type guys as far as early offers. And you kind of see that across the board with a lot of these kids. Um, Alex Crossway is a kid that's now starting to get more Pac-10 offers, and he's a guard that's going to show up at the camp. He's about yeah, about six three and a half, about 300 pounds. Um, but, you know, it's going to have to see, does USC want to go after a tackle, or do they want to get a guy who's going to be a guard, who's going to be a mauler inside, and not necessarily the greatest pass pro guy that can pass block, but a guy who's going to be physical, and just be a kind of a blue-collar offensive lineman. I mean, that's what we're going to see in the camp. Kind of what direction do they want to go? And can they find a kid that's really got a lot of talent that, uh, that maybe just, you know, they've got, a, they've got a, it's a little bit of a project. You know, they've got to work with a little bit. And I think that's what you're bringing into the lineman camp. That might be the, the, the kind of the headline here uh, coming into this weekend. Um, I think with the skills camp, like I said, maybe under-the-radar guys and 2011 guys, um, kind of as Brian touched on a little bit, uh, we'll start to see some of these kids that are you know, underclassmen that USC's trying to get a jump on evaluation-wise. And uh, you know, there's going to be some names that will be floating around out there. We know that Antoine Arnold will be there. We know that his teammate uh, Darius Gilroy is going to be there. Uh, Darius is kind of a cornerback, running back, a little smaller, probably you know, that 5'10 range, 5'11", 180 pounds. Uh, very dynamic player. Uh, the, the coach kind of feels like he might be the best player they have on that team in Chaparral, but everybody knows about Antoine Arnold. He's the big 6'3", 180 receiver that's got great speed. He's just kind of one of those top blue-chip guys that might be able to kind of push for that top receiver ranking in the 2011 class. And, you know, as we talk about defensive backs, we talk about running backs in this 2010 class, next year is really going to be about the wide receiver. So when you're talking about a kid being able to push for the top spot in that class of wide receiver, it's pretty talented. So we'll see how these guys progress. Uh, you know, Mustafa Jaleel is a kid from uh, down in San Diego, defensive lineman. Uh, he goes to the same high school as Alex Crossway, actually, uh, Cathedral Catholic. And we'll see kind of how he progresses it's about 6'3 270 I'm sure he's put on a lot of weight and that's this is where you know you want to see how does this kid progress here from his sophomore year to his junior year um is he going to be able a guy to carry the weight and still be an explosive player so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at I think it's going to be a little underclassman and kind of trying to see who USC can pick out uh, of the rough here get some diamonds get some guys that you know maybe not have a bunch of offers might be a surprise offer here or there uh and and, and that's kind of I think how you're looking at this weekend right now Brian, what are you, any uh, any thoughts from you on this camp coming up? Yeah, 
I think, yeah, I think this weekend's going to be a bit of a dichotomy from last year, how the, the two camps went in terms of uh, the consequence of pending scholarship offers. I mean, the skills camp last year was the marquee event. Uh, the lineman camp really didn't have any guys who ended up with scholarship offers at that camp. So this year, you know, priorities shift. Um, skills camp, like, like Gerard mentioned, uh, SE likes to kind of save their big, all the big names for rising stars. So you're not going to see a bunch of the – the, you know, the star running backs or wideouts in this camp. I think it's going to be more about underclassmen. Maybe a few 2011 offers emerge because USC really hasn't thrown any of them out yet. But the Lyman camp, I mean, just because the big names aren't going to be there doesn't mean it's not very important in terms of evaluation. USC needs at least four offensive linemen in this class, maybe five if you count. A lot of people are projecting Dak Smith to play on the offensive line. So it's a class where it's one of the priority positions in this class. And just because – the state doesn't have any guys the USC has offered yet doesn't mean that that's not going to change because if you look out of state, uh, USC's throwing about a handful of offers out there. And to be honest, you can't really feel safe about any of them, even a guy like Central Henderson, who's the number one player in the country. You can't bank on signing that kid eight months in advance when, he, when he's from Minnesota doesn't have any ties to the school. So you're going to have to offer some in-state kids. You're going to have to find those diamonds in the rough at, at, at offensive line. And it, it's doable, but – this is going to be a very important weekend for the lineman camp. Uh, look for uh, that's that's would be the the one I focus on. Like I said, skills camp, 2011 guys, uh, Antoine Arnold, George Farmer, some names that people already know. But uh, that's basically how this weekend's going to go. Probably great stuff, guys. Thanks very much, Gerard. Thank you for uh, joining us. Always good stuff, and uh, we enjoyed all your insights on recruiting this week. Giovanni DePaolo. I'm 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 leaving it with that. That's going to be. The explanation point on this weekend. We'll calling see what happens. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going Kobe. I'm calling it. I'm calling the shot. Uh, I, no, I'm not. I, I really, I, I shouldn't. I mean, I'm not trying to say that he's going to get an offer. But that's the kind of kid. You know, this is this is a guy. He's a you know smaller guy off the radar, and you know we kind of have to see what's going to go on with that. It's it's a unique camp. It's a unique year, and and USC's probably going to you know they might have to take a chance on somebody that uh, people you know the message boards will erupt with questions. More questions. We always we love the questions. questions. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gerard, again, and uh, Brian. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a great first podcast for you. I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback. They want to have you on again, and hope you'll come on again with us. Yeah, absolutely, no problem. All right, everyone else. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to all of our guests, and we will talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Pear Style Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Pear Style Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.